Okay. Good morning. Um, my name's Bill. I'm one of several people taking care of the teaching here in the in-person service. Uh, and uh, for those of you who haven't been a part of the last few months, uh, we are in a season where we're reflecting on one phrase in our mission statement, which is, as we experience the love of God, which in my estimation is absolutely the most important thing. I mean, if there's one thing that we need to really grasp, it's God's love for us. And by grasp, I mean not just know, but experience. So that's what we're in. We're in the midst of that lengthy now, you know, I think we're in our third month of reflections on this topic. Um, And I want to start out this morning, we're going to be talking about Sunday worship. That's a little bit of an ambiguous sermon title, but what's supposed to happen when we gather? Uh, And I want to start with a story. Next slide. I chose this slide very carefully because this is kind of what I picture when I tell the story. Uh, I heard this several years ago. Supposedly, it's a true story, but I'm wondering if it's really just an urban legend. Uh, The way it was told to me is that there was a sizable congregation searching for a new senior pastor. They went through a very thorough search finally called a man who was universally affirmed as a person of character, someone who really loved the church. Everyone was excited to hear him preach his first Sunday at church, and apparently he did a great, great job. People loved his sermon. He was funny. He was engaging, great stories. There was a great deal of enthusiasm about what kind of growth could happen for the church. Next Sunday, everybody comes with anticipation to see what the new pastor had to say for his second summer. Well, everybody's a bit surprised when he got up and gave the same sermon he had done the week before. Exact same sermon, word for word. As you can imagine, many people were perplexed. Uh, Not a few actually kind of shaken by that experience. I mean, a little unnerved. Some approached the folks on the elder board to express their concern. Uh, The elders wanted to be cautious with their new hire and decided they'd wait and see what would happen on the third Sunday. Well, lo and behold, third Sunday comes. Pastor got up, gave the same message for a third time. Well, you could feel the tension in the building. After the service concluded, uh, not a small number, you know, a pretty sizable number of people approached the different elders that they knew on the board, expressed their concern, and the elders during the week finally approached the pastor and asked him whether or not he had any other sermons to give. To which he responded, oh, yes. I have many more sermons to preach, but I'm not going to move on until I have a sense that the church is actually putting the first one into practice. True story? I have no idea. Does anybody have the courage to actually do that? I I don't know. But what does this story highlight? Real question. What's the story highlight for you about Sunday worship services? We expect new material every week, for sure. That's one of the bottom lines. And what about that new material? What's that? Well, that's the that's the flip side of the coin. But we kind of ex, we have expectations that it's going to be engaging, entertaining, helpful, illuminating, stimulating, whatever, right? How much do we really intend to actually do anything about it? I mean, we talk a lot about application or actually doing what we hear, but I mean, Jesus certainly did. But it doesn't seem to be the requirement of Sunday morning worship services, does it? 
What do you think about church growth? What do you think the major factor is in church growth? What's that? <laughs> Having babies. <laughs> yeah, catering to what people. I mean, but sermons. I mean, honestly, the. I mean, I, I don't want to say this too cynically, but you know, in the church shopping era of Christian dumb, people are looking for a good sermon, right? I mean, a lot of what happened. I mean. It's not like churches are growing through people becoming Christians. Churches are growing because people flock to someone they consider to be a good teacher, right? Regardless of whether or not it has any real impact on them or the community around them, right? Just saying, okay? I was a pastor for 11 years. I know the game. So Sunday sermons really don't change people by offering new or better information, but they tend to be really important in terms of the size of a church and kind of the way it's esteemed in the community. So, next slide. How did our worship services get so sermon-centric? See, I, I, I feel like there's a dilemma that we have as kind of American Western churches. And part of it is that we've become very sermon-centric. Right? How did that happen? Well, if you've been around for the last three months, you know my answer. What's my answer? Enlightenment. The Enlightenment. Thank you. You know, Since the Enlightenment, for 400 years, the church has stressed sort of the left brain, rational, reasoned approach to truth and salvation. You know, Salvation is tantamount to believing the right things, the right doctrines. Um, And really, we've become a half-brain church. We're a very left-brained institution, right? And to recover health, we have to, we don't get rid of the left brain, we have to develop and complement with the right brain. Does that make sense? Do you know what I mean by right brain, left brain? I'm sort of assuming stuff from sermons past, right? Left brain tends to be logical. It's where the words and explanation, right brain is where the seat of the emotions are. It's actually faster. The right brain processes reality faster. It takes cues from the nonverbal world. It uh, understands things on an emotional level, gives you quick alerts about danger, fine, great, right? So just quickly, right? So here's my question, third question. What do we know about what it was like to gather as a church in the first century? Is it like what we do today? And I can give you a quick hint that it's not. Right? What was it like to gather as believers in the first century? Just think about some of the past, I mean, Acts 2, 4, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, Paul's letters to different churches and sort of his description. What was it like? Real question. Yeah, I mean, generally involved food. Long extended times together. Frequent day, you know, spending the day together. I mean, in Acts 2 and 4, the believers were meeting in the temple area. But then shortly after that, after some persecution, where they start meeting? People's homes, right? So they're not meeting in buildings like this. They're meeting in people's homes. They're eating together. When you read through 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, what's what's your sense of what it was like to worship in Corinth? I mean, this is, 1 Corinthians 14 is where we get the phrase, do everything decently and in order, right? Which the Presbyterians, which I was a large, long-time member of, took to heart, right? So in the Presbyterian church, everything lasts one hour. There's five parts to the service. Sermon's at the center. But if you don't do those five, but it, I mean, and that's what you do on Sunday worship, right? Everything's done decently in order. Was that what it was like to go to church in Corinth? I mean, you don't get that feeling when you read Paul's letter. 
What was it like to be in a Corinthians worship service? Yeah, chaos is probably the first word. I mean, he's saying, okay, it's too chaotic, guys. You got to slow down. One person talks at a time. But what you begin to feel is it's very participatory, right? It's not one person standing up front talking. It's somebody shares a gift, somebody word, a word of encouragement. This, that, I mean, it's like I'm you know, trying to draw people out. I mean, everybody's worshiping. They're having an experience. They're sharing it. People are coming to homes. They're like, hey, how are you doing? What, you know? It was very connecting, right? I'm not, I'm not sure how connecting church is for most of us in the West anymore. It's pretty easy to come and go at large churches and be anonymous, right? Next slide. So bottom line, what's the purpose of Sunday worship? Why, why do we take the time and energy to meet together? And what in the world should be the fruit of it? Again, I think the answer is pretty simple. Don't go too deep. Relationship, absolutely. Community, connection. Strengthening, encouraging the believers. I mean, there's a million right answers to this question, so don't be intimidated. Experiencing Jesus, becoming like him. Right, so my, my answer, I mean, I, those are all great answers. So I'll keep it simple. I mean, John 4, the, in this woman at the well, Jesus says, you know, we, we, we're supposed to worship the Father in spirit and truth. What does it mean to worship? I mean, that's a word that's made up of two, it's acknowledge the worth. It's saying, okay, God, you have ultimate value. You're the treasure in my life. So the first thing is that when we come together, we're trying to reaffirm our attachment to God as the most important, most valuable thing in our life, right? The second thing is, later in John 13, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, that there's some kind of encouragement, growth, experience of love. To me, again, I'm, I'm pounding away on this, these, these words, but it's attachment to God and attachment to each other. And attachments are built through joyful interactions. That's how we build attachments. Over time, joyful interactions. Uh, I had a, when I was at Fuller Seminary, uh, there was a man there named Rob Banks from Australia. Wonderful, wonderful human being. Uh, he was a champion of house churches. We were part of his house church for a couple years. Uh, wrote a couple books. If you're interested in reading about life in the early church, he wrote one called uh, Going to Church in the First Century. He also wrote a more scholarly work called Paul's Idea of Community. Wonderful, beautiful books. I mean, but just amplifying some of these ideas of, you know, it didn't look like what it does now. And you know, it's part of the reason Becky and I have always liked small groups, because in our minds, small groups and that more intimate interaction is much more like what church is supposed to be than what happens in most big, larger kind of Sunday morning gatherings. I mean, if you can come and go and not make eye contact with someone, there's a problem in my mind. So, next slide. What's, what's the point? What's, oh, no, I'm beyond that. So here, here's my dilemma. Here's our dilemma, if, if you'll let me extend it out to you. Um, I have never felt more strongly about the importance of a sermon series than the one we are currently in. So I became a Christian when I was 16. I've been most of my adult life involved in ministry within a varsity, pastoring churches, or just as a layperson in churches, leading small groups. To me, this is it. This sermon series is like the one thing. If we don't experience God's love, we're not going anywhere in terms of growth, transformation, becoming like Jesus, or learning how to love one another. Right? Ironically, to me, the most important thing about this series is not the content. Content's important. I'm not saying it's not. It's, but it's not the most important thing. It's the practices. It's what we actually do with it that matters. Right? 
And so what I'm hoping you all have received from the past few months isn't just better information, but a way to grow your attachment with God and with each other. So here's the catch. Nothing will be gained unless the brain-changing, joy-making exercises are done on a consistent basis. So this morning, I just want to quickly go back over some of the ground that we've covered, not content-wise, but uh, in terms of the exercises we've tried to introduce, just to make sure you have them in mind. All right? Next slide. Oh, I am just getting confused. What's the point we've been making? First, let me go over some of the content. I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry, back to the, yeah, so joy. This is what we talked about last week. We are created for joy. We're created for love. Love and joy are very similar in terms of their uh, meaning. It's the building block. Joy is the building block for a healthy brain. This is what the last four decades of brain uh, scans and research has made clear. Joy is the building block for a healthy brain. Joy is relational. So we can be happy about circumstances, but joy is actually the experience of being with somebody else who, quote-unquote, is happy to be with us, pure and simple. Finally, our joy capacity determines how well we handle trauma. So the joy center of our brain is kind of in the right prefrontal cortex, you know, and like all parts of the brains, it can either grow or diminish. So one of the goals in our lives ought to be to build that joy center of our brain. Because when, when that joy center is developed, we have much more resilience when it comes to trauma, upset, suffering in life, which is going to come. Jesus said it's coming. Next slide. Who I love is more important than what I know. It's who we are, who we are attached to, and what that attachment is like that matters most. Uh, You cannot create your own identity. It is formed by who you are attached to. Our strongest attachments determine our identity and behavior. And the good news or the bad news is that the strongest attachments win, for better or for worse. Which is why worship is important, because we really, 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 really want our strongest attachment to be with God. When it's not, things go sideways very quickly. Next slide. So the good news is that God has adopted us as his children, that he takes pleasure in being with us, and as Jesus promised, he's always with us. I mean, just think about that for a second. I mean, I'm, this, is, this is the bottom line, straightforward truth of the gospel. God's not mad at us. He loves us. God's happy to be with us when we close our eyes and picture Jesus. He's smiling at us. He's not scowling or angry. And, praise God, he's with us all the time. That should be great encouragement. The next slide is, that's the good news of the gospel, the good news of brain science. Here's the good news of brain science. Our brains can be trained to learn new relational skills and form new attachments. Praise God. This is the wonder of neuroplasticity and automaticities, which he talked about a couple months ago, right? Neuroplasticity is the idea that our brains can form new neural pathways as we form loving and secure attachments with each other and God. Uh, Neurons that, you've probably heard this, neurons that fire together, wire together, right? Automaticities uh, are simply new neural pathways that become so well-formed that they almost become second nature, subconscious. So, again, when we put things into practice, first we're building new neural pathways, building the joy center, building relational connection, and then over time, if we just keep practicing, practicing, practicing it, we begin to grow a sense of, oh, God's with me. Oh, hey, Jesus. Oh, there you are. Right? Become second nature. Uh, next slide. So, um, 
At the center of all this is the need to experience God's love in a way that is real for us. That was not a problem for the church in the first century. Right? Again, when I read Acts, when I read uh, Corinthians, when I read the early, I mean, if anything, their experiences were so profound that Paul had to correct their over-realized eschatology, right? In Corinth, they thought that the resurrection had already taken place and they already had their spiritual bodies. God said, whoa, 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 slow down, slow down, slow down. Jesus is coming back. We're not that far along yet, right? But their, their experience of God's spirit and you know, the love of God being, was so profound that it's like, ooh, what's going on? It was created just this conceptual, like, whoa. For us, as post-enlightenment Western Christians, we have a much harder time trusting that God can and will speak to us. At least that's been my experience. Uh, We've been trained to treat our imaginations as fake. I mean, imagination is synonymous with not real, right? So that when something passes through our mind that might be from God, we tend to treat it dismissively, right? Rather than embrace it as God's message of love and affirmation to us. And I think that makes it very hard to live what Randy calls, and the phrase I love, the with God life. To me, if we're going to be transformed by our experiences of God's love, we have to not just learn to trust God speaking to us through our imagination, we actually need to seek it out. If we're not intentional about it, it'll happen kind of randomly, or maybe Sunday mornings and things, but it's got to be more frequent and more intentional than that. We want to rewire our brains to the reality of the truth of Scripture. It's got to be intentional. Again, what I'm saying is we've been formed by our culture and world to become practical atheists. You know what I mean when I say that? What's a practical atheist? It's someone who might be able to confess that they believe in God, but it makes absolutely no difference in how they live their life day to day. I mean, how often do we think of God? How often do we experience God's presence with us? I mean, we have to become practical theists or believers where we know God's with us every moment of the day. And that it infuses all of our interactions mentally with him and with each other. Where our identity and character are transformed because we know we belong to him. And I mean, I keep saying the same thing over and over again, but this is it, right? To me, this is it. So, again, I think the church has done, uh, over the last 500 years, the church has taught people how to think about God. And what needs to happen is that we need to th- learn how to think with God. That's a phrase I've read that I, when I read that, that is it. There's a huge difference between thinking about God, kind of left brain rationally, and thinking with God, right brain experientially. Like, hey God, what do you think about this? I mean, I've started, right now, uh, I'm re- renovating homes. And it's amazing to me how often I come up against a problem like, when I, when I Every once in a while, I'll stop remembering and think, Jesus, what am, help me understand, what, am, what should I do here? And it's remarkable how often he'll give me an insight. I mean, it's crazy to me. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, okay, perfect, thank you. But, you know, most of my life, that would never have even been something that would pop through my mind because I'm a practical atheist. But God cares, even about those little things. All right, so now what I want to do is go back through the exercises and practices that we've been. I mean, I don't know if you've picked this up or not, but, I mean, Randy asked us to, and we wanted to be very pragmatic, practical. I mean, how, how do you begin to build these things into your spiritual life and brain? So here's the exercises and practices that we've been doing. The first is gratitude memories. Kevin talked about, how, you know, and gave us sheets, and we wrote out, you know, give it a title, describe the experience, how did your body feel, and kind of building up a, a catalog, if you will, of gratitude memories. And then taking time each day to remember them, feel them, and express gratitude to God for that experience. What are you doing when you do that? You're building the joy center of your brain. You're 
rewiring, you're making neural pathways, right? Second, Becky talked about picturing the smiling face of God. I mean, it's interesting that the Hebrew word in the Old Testament that often gets translated as God's presence actually literally means God's smiling face. We've depersonalized it and turned it into the force from Star Wars, right? Ooh, the force be with you. God's presence be... But it's God's smiling face, which is important. I mean, it's, again, attachment, the strongest attachment forms in a baby's early life with their parents, and it's the smiling face of the parent that creates the bond of joy, right? So we, we talked about, you know, I mean, and she led us into a time of trying to pray and picturing God's smiling face. That's the blessing from Numbers 8.10. His face shine upon you, right? Third thing we talked about, closely related, is our mental image of God. This is something that Greg Boyd spends quite a bit of time talking about. Our attachment to God is only as transformative as our mental image of God. How do you understand, imagine, or picture God? Again, I... We live in a world that Jesus says is ruled by the enemy, has a system of brokenness, and we also have our own experience of fleshliness, you know, our own brokenness. From the beginning, the enemy has targeted our mental image of God. The very first thing he does to Adam and Eve is call into question what God is like. He's a withholder. I... Believe, I mean, you cannot have a good enough image of God in your brain. It's always going to be better than what you actually imagine, according to the scriptures. So don't be bashful about how good you think God is when you picture him in your head. To me, the parables, you know, Friday nights we're studying the parables of Jesus. Uh, The parables are so beautiful because every single time you're like, okay, this character that represents God, you know, the father running out to the son, the employer that goes back and back and back and back again to hire the day laborers because he doesn't want them to go hungry. I mean, it's just every single time it's what Bailey, the phrase from uh, this scholar that I like is costly demonstrations or visible demonstrations of costly love. That's what the parables describe over and over again is that God is visibly demonstrating his willingness to spend greatly to love people. And ultimately, that's the description of Jesus on the cross. It's a costly demonstration of God's love. Next exercise. Uh, where am I? Did we, number, go back. Uh, number four. So Greg Boyd, at the end of his book, Seeing is Believing, has an exercise called Resting in Jesus. Again, we, we did this a couple times. Very simple, where you just get to a place by yourself where you're quiet. You're going to a space in your mind where that's uh, a happy place where you're meeting Jesus. And then you're just allowing, you're saying, okay, Holy Spirit, run, run this time. Let it go. And then welcoming and seeing what happens. Great discipline. He does it every morning. Every time you do it, it's helpful. Uh, reading scripture, uh, St. Ignatius, the Catholic tradition, uh, it's called cataphatic prayer, cataphatic reading. It's just when you read scriptures, especially the gospel stories, put yourself in the scene and use your senses. What do you see? What do you smell? What do you taste? How do you feel? I mean, just it, it, everything you can in your mind's eye to imagine what that experience was like. That's helpful. What would it have liked to be the woman caught in adultery? How would you have received what Jesus did in that interaction? Or blind Bartimaeus or Zacchaeus up in the tree. I mean, every, but just picture, you know, everything you can do in your mind to make that as uh, dramatic and graphic as possible is helpful. Now, next slide. Nelson talked about Thanksgiving, giving appreciation. Again, in my mind, these are the, giving thanks, showing appreciation are just gateways for joy, gateways of, for connecting with people and building attachment. That's why Paul says, give thanks in all things. 
I mean, the, you just got to get in the habit of giving thanks, becoming thankful, not going to the dark side, but saying, hey, okay, what am I appreciative today? I mean, one of the things that I really love about Becky is that she kind of practices the daily examine. So in the morning, she's thinking about what she's grateful for in the evening. She's thinking about what she's grateful for. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Becky and I and my daughter were able to walk the Camino in Spain. If you ask us what the highlight is, you'll get different answers. But for me, it's always strange to me when I get emotional. I have never, <laughs> no idea when or why. Uh, but to me, the very best night of the 40 days that we walked, uh, we were all kind of tucked into bed, it's dark, lights are out. And I don't know why, but I just thought, what are the top five pilgrims that we've met? And then we just start listing them. And it, and it sort of snowballed, right? What are the top five places we've stayed? What are the top five? And it was this snowball of joy for me. It was just an incredible experience of, oh, my gosh. I mean, we, we made lists. I still have them on my phone. We have, I have a list of about 20 different top five things. And I went to bed just overwhelmed with God's goodness, joy. It's like, oh, my gosh. So great. Ah, okay. And that leads us to another practice for today. Is that helpful? I mean, these are some of the things that I'm hoping you've taken away and that I hope you kind of practice and do. But today I want to kind of give you an experience of one more way of trying to connect and experience God. Can you pass those out, please? And can you pass out pens for me, please? So you're going to need this sheet and you're going to need a pen. And this is a little exercise called Emmanuel journaling. Again, Emmanuel, you know, means God with us. So you can call it God with us journaling if you want. Uh, Becky and I, Kevin and Cindy, we've been kind of helped by an organization called Life Model Works and a guy named Jim Wilder. And this is just one of the tools that they use. Uh, it's something that we do periodically in our Sunday evening group. I apologize. Uh, it's easier if you have something hard to write on, but that's not going to be possible for all of you. But once everybody gets a paper and a pen, So first, I just want you to take a deep breath. Just calm yourself. Remember that a lot of G, uh, Hebrew Jewish scholars believe that the name of God is just the sound that we make when we breathe. So take some deep breaths. Calm yourself. And don't worry about what you're going to write and what it sounds like. Are, there, are the scriptures inspired? Are they God-breathed? See heads shaking yes. Do they sound like the people that wrote them? Yes. Right? So what you're going to write is going to sound like you, even if God's breathing, speaking, or in, connecting with you. So don't let that be a block. And just, again, my encouragement is relax. Don't be afraid about not hearing. Just relax and write the first thing that comes to you and then let it flow. So I'm just going to be up front and sort of monitor time. Becky, you got any extra sheets? Nope, that's it? Oh, dear. Martha's done this before. Thank you, Martha. All right, so let's, let's pray. God, I, I just ask again, we, we acknowledge that you're here. We know that you're here. Spirit, we invite you to come now as we do this exercise. I pray that you would just calm us and speak to us. So again, remembering that gratitude is sort of a gateway to connection and to joy. I just write down anything you appreciate from today, from the weekend. doesn't have to be big. Just anything that you can think of that you're grateful for. Take a minute and write that down.
It's, you know, we're talking about text message length. Now, under B, just write God's response to you. How does he hear your expression of appreciation? What does he say back? And don't edit, don't dismiss, just whatever comes first, write it down. If more keeps coming, then keep writing. I may have to cut you off. Everything else we do now is going to be written from God's perspective speaking to you. So step two is, I can see you. God's saying to you, I can see you. So write from God's perspective what he observes in you right now including your physical sensations, how you, where you are emotionally, what you're thinking about, whatever. I can see you. Okay, step three is, I can hear you. Write from God's perspective what he hears you saying to yourself. If you haven't done so already, you can flip the sheet over. Step four is I understand how big this is for you. How does God see your dreams and blessings or your upsets and troubles? Writing from God's perspective, what does he want to tell you? Step five, I'm glad to be with you and treat your weakness tenderly. How does God express his desire to participate in your life?
step six, I can do something about what you are going through. What is God's encouragement for you at this time? When you're done, go ahead and just look up and kind of let me know. So the final step of the exercise seven is read what you have written aloud, preferably to someone else. Um, it's funny, I, I'm a little jumbled this morning. I can tell that I didn't do a couple of the exercises and practices. I, mean, I didn't talk about practicing God's presence, just, again, just learning how to stay in the now and not punish yourself when you forget about God, but just when you do, remember, it's like, oh, okay, okay. Anything you want to tell me? Anything you want me to know? And then last week, uh, Becky talked about uh, or didn't a, a abridged version of telling joy stories, which is, again, something that we do on Sunday nights around food. During dinner, we just, people go around and share joy stories from the week. Uh, it's a great mealtime practice. Um, the important thing about joy stories is that it solidifies the neural pathway in our brain. It's funny. You can think about something, but speaking it out and sharing it actually does more in terms of the wiring of what's going on in our right brain. So important to share with someone else. So let me just ask, uh, first in a broad way, how was this experience for people? If a couple of you would share, I mean, it's encouraging, hard, anything that was tripped you up, anything that was it good, was it new? Good. For how many people is this like the first time you've tried something like this? Oh, okay. So I'm preaching to the choir here. Anybody else? So, so Juan and I are very similar. Juan, you're preaching to me because that's my struggle. It's not filtering or dismissing. And what I have found, and see, it's funny that you like the specificity. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. You know, I, I am not a journaler. Uh, but a few years ago, I finally started buying those black moleskin books. And, um, and I'm the kind of person that wakes up with a lot of things in my head. So I just initially just start writing them all down because otherwise I'll be afraid that I'm going to forget. And sometimes it's just a list of stuff i got to get done. Blah, blah, blah. But then I'll just start telling God what I'm worried about or concerned about or happy about. And then I'll stop and say, okay, anything you want me to know, I'm listening. And I was shocked that there's usually something coming. And then, and I've learned to begin to trust it and not edit it, and just go with it. Uh, sometimes there's a lot, sometimes there's a little. But yeah, that's, for me, that was like the main obstacle to overcome. Anybody else? Yeah. 
<laughs> so, thank you. In in responses, so a couple weeks ago, I talked about First Corinthians thirteen and sort of this idea that all prophecy is like looking into a mirror darkly. So there's no such thing as a perfect prophecy. It's all partial. It's all so we just you know everything we get we hold open-handedly. But Paul also the main point of First Corinthians thirteen is that with everything, if it doesn't if this isn't a manifestation or an exercise of love, then it's worthless. So all of these things are giving God an opportunity to express love toward us. And even you being busted, I mean, I think Paul makes the distinction. He says, you know, there's a kind of guilt that is redemptive because it gets us moving in the right way and it's an expression of love. And then there's a kind of guilt that is really from Satan in terms of shaming and oppressive and not life-giving. So that to me is just one of those things. We, okay, when, when we get stuff... Just got to screen it through the law of love, right? And is it is it from God? I mean, because God's not the only one who speaks. Amen? But thank you. But that, you know, God's love is like that. It will discipline us and kick us in the butt periodically because he really, 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 really wants us to be attached and connected and to know his life-giving love in our lives. Anybody else? Anyone, so here's the final question. This is going to take some guts. Anyone want to read their, what they wrote? Martha? And Martha, you gave me your sheet, so how did, oh, you did it on your phone. Look at you. Can people hear Martha? Do you need a microphone? Here. Okay, so, um, Papa, I am grateful for Bill's passion. And God's response was, yes, I love my son. I can see you sitting there wanting to get this, and this being what he was talking about today, because it truly is the most important thing. I can hear you praying to me for help to get this. I understand how big this is for you because you feel you are so deficient. I treat your weakness tenderly. Your deficient is not a big deal for me. I can do something about what you're going through. Your destiny has always been in my hands ever since you said yes to me. You belong to me. this helpful? Okay, let's pray. Uh, Lord, I, I, again, I'm just so thankful for the truth you've revealed in Jesus. That when we look at him, we know we're looking at you. And that especially who you are is most clearly discerned in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. That costly demonstration of your love. Uh, I'm thankful that your love casts out all fear. I'm thankful that you are present with us all the time, that when we stop and connect with you, you're smiling at us. You're happy to be our parent, that you're happy to attune and give us your attention and pay attention to our wants and needs, and that you have the perspective to help us mature. So I just want to pray that you continue to help each and every one of us to just practice, practice, and practice uh, connecting with you. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that you said would shed your love abroad in our hearts. We just invite the Spirit's work to just constantly remind us of your goodness, to help improve our mental image of you, and just to grow in that kind of ever-present sense of your being with us and your goodness. Uh, 
And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, thanks for coming.